and through these um through these peptide medications we will not have a a um sorry an obesity epidemic in the next five to ten years it, it will be cured they are that powerful um where we're seeing you know 20 if not 30 percent weight reductions so it, it's um wow. i'm very bullish about that class of medication because if we can keep people at a at a healthy weight for for their lives we reduce cancer rates we reduce heart disease we reduce strokes it's epic welcome to the zapiens podcast today i have on dr brad stanfield who a little bit different than our usual guests is not a research scientist but a medical doctor and that means he gets to see the effects of a lot of this technology and these techniques that we talk about but directly into the lives of patients that he deals with in new zealand that being said brad is also extremely well versed in a variety of topics particularly in longevity that we discussed today and on top of that, he's also working to run his own clinical trial in rapamycin. Uh, and we'll go into deep dives into literature on his YouTube channel that I know I have learned a lot from. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for coming on today, Brad. Uh, I'm excited to meet you. I've been watching your your YouTube channel for a long time and, and following a lot of what you say on, on things like longevity and, and health. Uh, so um, for people who aren't as familiar with, with what you do, we have a lot of people that are kind of from a physics background. Uh, can you explain uh, kind of an overview of what you work on with being a doctor and YouTuber and uh, longevity enthusiast? <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. So I'm a, I'm a practicing medical doctor here in New Zealand. Um, so that's my full-time job. Uh, but on the side, I also run a YouTube channel where I go through the research about how to actually promote health. Because there's so much, in my view, misinformation online where people are looking at either cell data or mice data and then extrapolating all sorts of lifestyle habits um, that actually go against the evidence. So what I wanted to do is create a resource that goes through the, the clinical guidelines and human research to actually say this, these are the things that people can be doing to prevent disease, to stay healthy, to keep their strength. Um, and, you know, so far it's going okay. We've got about 120,000 subscribers now. So I think people seem to appreciate the, the emphasis that I do put on human clinical studies. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely appreciate the input and the way that you go through individual papers uh, and specifically go through the data and not necessarily jump to the conclusion sections that a lot of people uh, do, I think is really helpful, especially in like uh, medical data science or biology, um, where the conclusions can be maybe a little muddied compared to and i'm used to physics where it's very difficult to muddy results you have you count an event rate and that's it that's the answer um but in, in medical science it's sometimes it's not always obvious um so yeah, i I'd probably found... say that we, we should be we should be a bit more rigorous i think as a field in general with the conclusions and with the headlines and i appreciate that you know the the journals they want catchy headlines and and things because they need to sell clicks they need to sell views but you know, equally, we need to make sure that the conclusions that are written um, and the abstracts that are that are published actually fit the the data that's um, th that's been gleaned from that study. So, yeah, I, I do think that the biology field in general kind of needs to go for the more you know physics route, um, where you come up where you start with a testable hypothesis and you try and disprove that hypothesis. I think that's quite a a good way of going about um, doing science. So this might be jumping ahead a bit, but I did really want to ask you about uh, how you think uh, they should design metrics in, in these studies. I know you've talked a lot about doing things like uh, 
visible results in kind of the final physical effects of, of certain drugs or supplements. Um, but I, I feel like that's, that's a very hard thing to kind of mathematically verify. Like whenever I, I said before, whenever I'm doing a study in physics, it's, this is the event rate. This is the emittance of my beam. This is a specific number that I am describing. Um, but when you're doing a, a clinical study, I mean, how do you know someone didn't just like drink a bunch of coffee that day? And that's why they're, they're like all of a sudden more active. Yeah, it depends on the, the hypothesis and, and the study design. So for example, let's take um, cholesterol lowering medication. So statins, for example. So it's important that we choose a, um, an outcome that truly matters. So for example, cardiovascular death rates, that, that's a good end point because that's a, that's a yes or no. You either died from cardiovascular disease or you didn't. And if you follow patients up for say a five-year period, you can get a very clear answer as to whether cholesterol lowering medications will lower the chance of dying from cardiovascular disease. So it, it really depends on how the, the study is conducted. And this is one of the, the gripes, I, I suppose, that, that I do have with the, with the longevity and aging space, because th there's a big push at, at the moment to go for, you know, biological age or, or biological age kits, DNA methylation clocks, and they're not yet validated for clinical medicine. So what I mean by that is when I see patients in the clinic, I want to do everything that I can to prevent heart attacks, to prevent strokes, to keep their muscle strength. Um, and the things that I, um, that, that I know seem to matter are, you know, blood pressure, do they smoke? Um, are they depressed? What is their cholesterol? Those are the things that, that seem to influence their heart disease risk. Um, and, and I know that if I influence those, I can lower their heart disease risk. Whereas with um, DNA methylation clocks, they're not yet validated to say, okay, if, if I lower someone's DNA methylation age by five years, what will that actually do to their cardiovascular risk? We, we don't yet know. So I think, I, I certainly think that DNA methylation clocks need to be studied and looked at in clinical research. Um, I'm not yet convinced about their um, utility at the moment uh, for, you know, people actually buying these clocks and, and making health decisions based on the results of those clocks. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think we need to still focus on the fundamentals, which are, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, cholesterol levels, blood pressure, or all of that thing, or all of those things first, before we get too carried away uh, with DNA methylation clocks. So one, one thing that I've always, there, there, I have a mixed opinion on DNA methylation clocks from a completely physics perspective. Uh, in the first being that, like, I think DNA methylation clocks should be great because here's this objective measure that, I mean, a lot of the time I say, okay, this, this person feels better about their health while they're, they're lying, right? Like that's kind of my, my de facto answer is like, I don't, I don't trust anything anyone says. I trust more like what a specific number is. But then at the same time, I've heard that I actually heard from uh, one of the videos on your channel with, with Dr. Levine, that there are massive amounts of noise in these DNA methylation clocks. Um, so do you think a, a good next step would be kind of improving these DNA methylation clocks? Or do you think another step would be or a better step would be connecting these DNA methylation clocks to clinical variables. Yeah, I think they need to be connected to clinical variables. So we don't know what the impact is if you um, if you make a health change. So say, for example, if your DNA methylation clock comes out at 60 years old and you do something to, to change that so that it, it drops to 55, we don't know whether that change that you've made will actually correlate with lower heart disease, lower stroke rates, um, 
longer life we don't know that it hasn't been clinically validated yet so it's a nice number um that that we can point to to say oh well look we've reversed aging by five years but we don't know if we actually have reversed aging maybe that maybe that person when they first did the um when they first did their measurement maybe they went on a on a run in the morning and then did the dna methylation clock test so when they did that test they had higher levels of inflammation because of they just went for that early morning run um, compared to you know a, a couple of months later when they didn't go for that run, so I'm just saying that there are there are so many other variables that can influence the the results of those DNA methylation clocks, and we don't know yeah clinically how relevant they are if at all. Um, I think for, for me as a clinician, it's far more interesting. Again, what's your blood pressure? What's your weight? What's your height? What's the cholesterol? Those are the things that we know do influence your cardiovascular disease, your stroke rates, etc. Um, so un until those, yeah, until the DNA methylation clocks are clinically validated, if, if someone comes to me in the clinic and says, oh, I've, yeah, reversed my aging by five years, I, it's difficult to interpret what that actually means. Yep, but also at the same time, a lot of these clinical variables would also vary on a daily basis, right? Like I know my weight fluctuates up and down like crazy. Um, for example, and say I went to a steam room before I, I went and got these these new measurements taken and that fluctuated my weight or I ate a cheeseburger before I uh, came into the office and maybe had higher cholesterol levels. Is there a way to, because now I feel like you're dealing with a two variable problem. Is that something that becomes kind of sticky? To be honest, no, not clinically, because what you're looking for is ranges. So you know with the with diet changes um for, for that day or say if you've just gone into a sauna and you've you've sweated out um a lot of fluids and salts you know you, you'll change your weight by let, let's say plus minus two or three kilograms um that 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 doesn't necessarily matter that much in terms of the calculation that we do to work out your heart disease risk in the next five to ten years um because it's 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 a range so for example if um, if I've got someone who's 180 centimeters and they weigh 100 kilograms um, and, and then say that the next day they weigh 101 or they weigh, you know, 98 kilograms, that doesn't really matter. I know that that person's overweight. So I know that we need to do something for that person to improve their, um, to improve their overall health. So, yeah, it, it's the, the, the small changes don't necessarily matter. Uh, on on a day to day basis compared to your overall health trajectory. Okay, so how would you propose doing a, a study to do to study these correlations between connecting these DNA methylation clocks to people in the clinic? Would you just? I feel like there's already a lot of data of people who have been tested using DNA methylation clocks at different clinical variables. Do you think there's enough data out there now to try and do a meta analysis, or do you think that's something that needs to still be? I I wouldn't have thought so, <clears throat> be okay. because. In a perfect world, if um, if if they if the DNA methylation clocks were validated, and what I mean by that is, you know, if, if we if we show a five year age reversal on a DNA methylation clock, and we know that that reduces heart disease by a certain percentage, that's interesting. And I don't think we've got that data yet. What we've got is sporadic, yeah. What what we've got is sporadic data. So in a perfect world, we would um, we would test someone's DNA methylation age. And would follow those people up for about five years, and and each year would test their their DNA methylation clock, um, and would also record whether they've had a heart attack or obviously if they're still alive, and from that 
information I think we could glean whether there is a correlation between the DNA methylation age and heart disease or death rates. That I think would be quite interesting, but I, I'm, I'm not aware of any human clinical studies that have gone, that, that have done that, that have, um, yeah, that, that have followed patients up over that five year period. Um, and yeah, the, the cynical part of me says that the, the companies that are producing these clocks, it's not necessarily in their best interest because they can already sell these clocks to people. Um, so I, I don't think that the financial incentives necessarily align. That makes sense. So uh, this is kind of a, a broad question, maybe, but what is it like to be a doctor? I'm so used to the research world where I'm not real. I'm interacting with with people in meetings and people that are kind of on the same page. But I couldn't imagine being in a clinic and explaining DNA methylation to five different people or 10 different patients every day. Like I had three people ask me what I do for work yesterday. And by the end, I was like, I can't talk about dark matter anymore. Like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Um, so what, what is that like having that interaction with people every day while also having such a different group of people that are looking into very intense science and, and biology? Yeah, I think it's an incredible privilege because people are coming to me and they, they're putting their faith in me that I can help them, yeah, again, prevent disease um, and to keep them healthy as, as long as possible. So, yeah, it, it, again, it is, a, it is a privilege that, that people... Um, that people place that faith in us. And I think as a medical profession, we need to do everything in our power to repay that faith. So when I see patients in the clinic, it's not, it's not generally speaking to them about DNA methylation clocks. The, the things that, that, that they actually seem to, um, to care about is how they're feeling. But when they wake up in the morning, do they feel refreshed? What is their, what is their mental health? What is their weight? Do they feel energized? Um, are, are they doing everything that they can to prevent heart disease and, and strokes. Those are the things that, that truly matter. So the clinic that I work in, it's not a longevity clinic. It's a um, semi-rural clinic. And I wanted to, to work in a semi-rural clinic because I'm seeing quite ill patients. So I'm seeing patients that have got rip-roaring diabetes, that have got florid heart failure, dealing with you know sort of catastrophic health issues. And what can we do to then help those patients reverse things and, and improve their health? Um, so, so that, that's some of the patients that I see, but then the, the other patients are, you know, uh, patients coming to me and again, asking what, what can I do to prevent disease? And I find, I find both um, buckets of patients very interesting. Um, and it's rewarding because with the, with the medicine tools that we've got today, we can make massive impacts on these patients' health. So yeah, overall, I think I'm incredibly lucky to be practicing medicine today. I think it's a privilege. Um, yeah, and I, I really enjoy it. Um, so how much of this research that you do that you describe on your YouTube channel and, and in these paper reviews, do you think it's directly used in the clinic? Like, do you have any hesitation of, well, I saw this paper, but I'm still not completely confident in its results. I'm waiting for this amount of data to come out. How, how long does it take for you to directly start making recommendations to your patients? So the, the human research that I go through, um, they inform the clinical guidelines that I practice in my clinic. So there's a website called uptodate.com, which is one of the clinical guideline uh, pathways that, that I use. And UpToDate is brilliant because they reference, the, so they explain the guideline and then they reference all of the clinical research that, that has informed that, um, that study, uh, sorry, that, that guideline. So it, it's quite easy for me then as a, as a YouTuber trying to explain why clinical guidelines are the way they are. <clears throat> and I also know that 
I'm not going off the deep end um, with uh, with a particular study. So, for example, um, there's one human uh, study showing that showing a correlation between lower cholesterol and higher death rates. And if you just looked at that study, um, and this is what a lot of people uh, do online, unfortunately, they they interpret that as well. Lower cholesterol means higher death rates. Therefore, I don't want to be lowering cholesterol, which is absolutely not the the takeaway message from that paper. Um, what what was happening in that particular observational study was that the people who were who were sicker, who had chronic diseases, those were the patients that had um, that had lower cholesterol because their nutrition wasn't wasn't as good. They weren't eating the, essentially that they weren't eating enough. That they were slowly dying, um, and that that's why that yeah that, that's why there was that correlation between lower cholesterol and higher death rates so if you just looked at that paper you can be led astray whereas if you if you look at the broader picture of of the clinical research you know that you know how to interpret that study correctly so um coming back to the clinical guidelines the the guidelines that, that i go through explain all of that and they explain the timeline of of the changes that that have um, happened and, and the key papers that in, that have informed those changes so for me, it's quite easy because I, I'm, I'm very guideline driven because I know the human clinical research behind those guidelines and why they are the way they are. And I think, um, I think it's important to explain that to the, um, to the public that it's not just an expert panel that, that's come together. There's truckloads of human clinical research supporting the guidelines. So yeah, it's, it's easy for me to recommend certain things to my patients that I see. So who maintains all these guidelines? I know you have uptodate.com, but is this some is this a particular group of people? Is that something you've ever considered being involved with? Yeah, so there's different um, governance boards. So for example, there's the, you know, for, for cardiology guidelines, there's the um, American Heart Group. Um, there, there's the Endocrine Society. There's there's a bunch of different, um, so, so each field will have their overarching board that, that looks at all of the clinical research and they're clinicians themselves um, and and they, they formulate those guidelines so yeah it, it's quite a robust process it's not um, yeah it, it, it it's not just I suppose making things up because um, based on one particular paper it's it, it's based on you know overall expert opinion that's been informed by these clinical um, by these clinical uh, human studies mm. Yeah, so um, kind of related to this, but on, on your on your channel, you've talked a lot about uh, extending health span rather than extending lifespan in particular. Um, can you just kind of describe, I guess, what the metrics would be for a difference between? I mean, lifespan is obvious has an obvious metric of this is when they die, right? But health span again runs into this kind of metric issue. Um, so, how do you describe expending extending health span, uh, and why do you think that's why is that your personal target rather than extending lifespan? Yeah, so the health span is the the amount of time in someone's life where they are healthy. And, and by that, I mean, you know, do they have the strength to do the things that they want to do in terms of their hobbies? Um, are they disease-free so, so they're not crippled by heart failure or the complications of diabetes um, or, or things like that? So I think that's a, um, that, that's a far better... Um, metric because what what we're what we're not trying to do is extend the final years in life where you know you you are frail you you are dependent on other people for your health um that that's that's not the interesting part of, of what we do the interesting part of what we do is again trying to make sure that that 
we prevent disease, we prevent heart attacks and strokes, we try and keep patients' strength so that they can do the activities that they want to do and still um, be an active member of society. So I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's a, a bit more of a noble goal, I suppose, to, to focus in on that. Um, it's also a bit more tangible for patients. So most of the patients that I see in the clinic, um, you know, that they, they don't want to necessarily extend their life if it means that they're going to have to spend far, far more years in a private hospital. Um, they want to, you know, be playing with their grandkids later on. They want to, you know, continue playing golf. So, yeah, it, it's, it's an easier metric to, to explain to patients. Um, yeah, and, and in theory, if you extend health span, you're probably also going to extend lifespan as well. Right. So uh, you focus a lot on, on longevity in one form or another in kind of anti-aging treatments in, in your channel and connecting to some form of, of supplement or, or exercise regime. Um, but what about other parts of biology? Are there other things that, that interest you as well um, that you don't talk about as much? So I think there's a lot of interesting uh, areas in the field of aging. Um, and, and so I think that sort of takes up my primary interest because I, I just, yeah, looking online, I don't think people are doing all of the things that they could be doing to extend their health span. So, so first of all, that's my interest is trying to get the information out there to show people if you do X, Y, and Z, you can significantly improve your health and prevent disease. So I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in, in trying to translate some of the studies that we see in mice into human clinical research. So one of the things that I'm very interested in at the moment is a molecule called rapamycin. So over and over again, when it's tested in mice, we see a 20, roughly a 20% lifespan extension. Um, but the human clinical research has kind of dragged their heels on rapamycin because it's got a bit of a dirty name in medicine. Um, it's primarily used to prevent organ rejection uh, in transplant patients. So trying to use this medication for, for health purposes or longevity purposes, um, it's been quite difficult to, to get that underway. So I'm, I'm interested in trying to yeah, translate some of the interesting things we see in mice into humans as well. And it, the, yeah, again, there's so many things coming through that um, I want to try and maintain a bit more of a laser focus in on, on that as opposed to getting distracted by, by other things. That sounds kind of similar to uh, a lot of the work that's been done in metformin, although I know you've been back and forth on your personal opinions on, on metformin as a longevity drug. Yeah, I, I, um, I don't think that the, that the mice studies support the use of metformin in non-diabetic, um, for, for non-diabetic patients. So mm -hmm. I think it's important to clarify here. Metformin is the number one medication prescribed for type 2 diabetics. So if I saw a newly diagnosed type 2 diabetic in the clinic, Metformin is the first medication that I would prescribe to them alongside diet and exercise. So metformin absolutely needs to be used in clinical medicine. The, the question that, that we're uh, addressing is should metformin be used for non-diabetic patients? And in my view, the, the research does not support that, um, that hypothesis. So if we first look at the mice studies, so there's a program called the Interventions Testing Program. And this is a really, really robust program um, because it, it runs the same experiment in three separate labs at the same time. So you, you know that um, if you see a statistically significant result um, in all three of those labs, it's not just a quirk in one lab. It's probably going to be a true result that's reproducible. And in, in this program, they also used genetically diverse mice. So a, a lot of the other labs, they use 
so-called black six mice, which are a particular strain of inbred mice, which doesn't necessarily represent um, human biology, whereas these genetically diverse mice, they are closer to um, human biology. So it's, it's hoped that the results that we see from this program can be more readily translatable to humans. When this program tested metformin, there was no health span or lifespan benefits seen. So in my view, the, the mice studies do not support its use. Then if you have a look at the human clinical research, there's a program called the Diabetes Prevention Program, where what, one of the things that this program did was they gave metformin to so-called high-risk patients. So these patients were overweight and had higher levels of um, fasting blood sugar, um, but they weren't type 2 diabetics. They gave half of them uh, metformin and half of them placebo. And over a roughly 10-year time frame, there was no health span or lifespan benefit seen. So there was no reduced heart attacks. There was no reduced um, kidney disease. There was no reduced cancer. And there was no impact on mortality. So I think at, at this stage, I do not advocate the use for metformin in non-diabetics. A, because there's no benefit, but B, there's possible harm. So in the past few years, um, there's been, a, I think, about two or three separate studies that have looked at the impact of metformin on exercise performance. So it seems that if you take metformin, you blunt the positive effects of exercise by about 50%, so not an insignificant number. So, you know, we want to be doing everything that we can to, to maximize muscle strength and, and mitochondrial uh, performance. We don't want to be minimizing the, the impact that exercise has on those metrics. And it looks like metformin does. So I, I, I do not think that non-diabetics should be using metformin, which is entirely separate to type 2 diabetics. They absolutely should be using metformin. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a, an important distinction to make because people do like to kind of black and white say, okay, metformin is good for me or bad for me. It yeah, very much right. depends on the, the individual. Um, as kind of a personal story, I, I was taking metformin for a short amount of time as a non-diabetic because I was able to get my hands on some. And the athletic performance issues are absolutely true. Um, I was taking a very low dose because I was just kind of like trying it out. Uh, and it was very noticeable to the point that I, I completely stopped. Uh, and I, I noticed the same thing when, when I used to take it. And, and this even included when I just, when I only took it on non-exercise days, I still noticed a difference. And then when I, sorry, um, and then when I stopped metformin, yeah, then my exercise capacity started to skyrocket. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, you mentioned your rapamycin clinical trial, which I think is a super exciting uh, project that you're working on. Can you explain why you think rapamycin is so important and kind of where you are with working on that? Yeah, so coming back to the interventions testing program. So again, when they trialed rapamycin, they could see these lifespan extensions. And, and th this has been done multiple times now. So that the, if we think that we're seeing a true um, effect here. It's not just some quirk in a lab. Um, now, I, I really like the, the mechanism for how rapamycin works. So it, it influences an enzyme called mTOR. So when we exercise or when we have a, a protein meal, we activate mTOR, which um, builds new proteins, builds muscle. Um, but one of the interesting things that seems to happen as we get older is, um, is our muscle function declines, but strangely, mTOR seems to be switched on. It's, it's almost like our body's trying to compensate um, for our, our muscles weakening, that it's trying to, to rebuild that muscle to, to, to keep its strength. But the problem with always activating mTOR 
is that you're not activating a separate process called autophagy, which is the cell clearance process. So think of it like you're, you're trying to, to, to always build, but you're never clearing away the, the old damaged components. So it seems that if you have separate, separate periods of time where you're switching mTOR off and clearing away these old damaged components and old mitochondria, so that when you start, you know, when you're separately exercising and having protein, you can rebuild new components and, and rebuild new mitochondria. That seems to be a really interesting hypothesis. So we've, well, I've designed a um, clinical study in combination with uh, Dr. Matt Caberline to explore that idea where um, we're going to be testing once a week rapamycin in older adults and we're going to combine it with exercise. So these patients are going to be exercising three times a week and then on the weekend, they're either going to be taking rapamycin or placebo. And we're going to follow them up for a period of about three months. And we'll want to see what will happen to their 30-second chair stand test. So this is how many times can you stand up and sit back down in 30 seconds. Um, and we're hopeful that we can show that rapamycin is not only safe, but we, we've got a signal of improvement. So this is an, a phase two study, again, to show that Again, it's safe and hopefully a signal towards improvement. And then w with that research, hopefully we can um, we will have justification for a much larger study where we can have a look to see if there's a true statistically significant improvement in muscle performance. Because at the moment, aside from diet and exercise, there are no treatments available to improve muscle performance in older adults. So... If, if rapamycin can offer those benefits for older adults, that's huge. It means that we can, you know, reduce the need for rest homes in private hospitals. People can, you know, still do the activities that they want to do. They can play golf. They can play with their grandkids. They can do all of these things. So I think it's, um, yeah, it, it, I'm excited by it because of the potential impact it may have on humanity. Yeah, I, I think that was a, an amazing explanation of, of kind of describing mTOR and autophagy, kind of mixing them in, in, in one and why they're so kind of, I guess, anti-dependent on each other. Uh, so a, a couple of questions about this is, why? Did, how did you decide on the chair test? Um, again, I feel like this is something that could be very noisy, um, but maybe over a long period of time, it might kind of uh, eliminate some of that noise. How did you decide on that specific metric for uh, describing as, that as like a muscle development test? Yeah, so we wanted to focus on functional outcomes. So when, again, when I, I come from a clinical background, right? So when, when I see patients in the clinic, I want to know that a particular treatment is, again, going to prevent disease or going to make them stronger. Um, the, so a, a lot of other studies, they focus in on what, what a particular biomarker might show in the blood. And that's, while it's interesting, it, it's not that clinically relevant. What's clinically relevant, again, is are we preventing disease? Are we keeping these patients strong and healthy? Um, so we wanted to choose a functional outcome. And then it, we were thinking, well, what is the, the best functional outcome for muscle strength in older adults? And looking at all of the different uh, tests that we could do, such as you know the, um, the six-minute walking test or the hand grip strength test, which we're also testing, um, mm -hmm. but, but overwhelmingly it seems that the, the best test is the 30-second chair stand test um, because that, that correlates with, um, with, with many different uh, strength uh, tests for, um, for humans. So th that's, that's the reason why we chose that one. And you, you're correct, it is, it is noisy. Um, so we'll be testing, we'll, we'll be doing this test at, um, at baseline at the six-week mark and then also at the 13-week mark. Um, there, there's not a huge amount that we can do to minimize the noise. Um, 
the, the only real way that we can do that is by testing a lot of different people. And that will be the subsequent phase three study that we'll do. But we are also testing, yeah, again, hand grip strength test, the six minute walking test, the balance scale. Um, but that's a function of biology. The, it, it's not, um, that there's not going to be a perfect test that has zero noise, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's just biology. So one thing that I've always been kind of confused about with the mTOR pathway. So like you said, you're kind of in this regenerative mode where you're kind of building muscle development when the mTOR pathway is activated or you're in this kind of autophagy mode that causes uh, recycling of these uh, of these organelles. Um, but say you start giving people rapamycin and it kind of forces deactivation of the mTOR pathway and encourages autophagy. Does that mean that muscle development should also slow down? even if you're exercising and having having a strong diet? Yeah, so, so that's what we're testing as well. And again, that's why we need to make sure that this therapy is first safe before we progress onto, um, onto a larger phase three study. So I think, I think chronically switching mTOR off every day is probably not a great idea. Um, that's why we've elected for that once a week hit, if you like. We want, we, we want a strong signal to switch mTOR off um, to activate autophagy, but but not do that all of the time. We, we probably just want that once a week or once a fortnight, and then the rest of the time. So and and so so once we've gone through that that um, recycling process and that clearance process, then the rest of the time we want to be building. So I think that the intermittent dosing is crucial here. I do not advocate for rapamycin to be used every day. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, in terms of funding this, I know you've been working on, on crowdfunding this, and I, if you if you want me to, I'd love to put like a link in the description of this video for your trial. Um, but have you also worked with any other larger groups, like approaching pharmaceutical companies or venture capital groups? Yeah, so initially there were there was some interest from venture capital groups. The issue with rapamycin is that it's off-patent. So it's it would be nigh on impossible um, to to recoup the the investment um mm -hmm. and unless you did some really clever things with with the patents um so yeah it's it, essentially it's, it's difficult to get your money, money back which yeah. is unfortunate because you know overwhelmingly rapamycin that is the molecule that's been that's been shown to extend lifespan robustly in the interventions testing program so it's really unfortunate that it, it's a money issue at the moment um so that's why we're trying to do this fundraiser, um, but it, it relies on people's goodwill. And then to do these studies um, properly, it, it's it's not cheap. It is expensive. So it, it's roughly costing us about four hundred and ninety thousand US. So and 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 that's that's because during the study you have to go through ethics approval. You have to have a third party auditing uh, service. You have to make sure that the nurse is following these patients to make sure that there's no adverse events. You have to do all of these tests correctly. Um, you have to have a data monitoring committee. You have to have all of these things. So it's um, it's expensive to do, but it's crucial to do because, again, the, the benefits for humanity are potentially massive here. Right. So uh, we've talked about rapamycin. We've talked about metformin. Um, what are some of the, but there's a bunch of other technologies and, and supplements that are coming coming out as kind of these descriptions of uh, increasing lifespan or health span. NAD plus boosters come to mind. Uh, cellular rejuvenation comes to mind. Um, what are some of the other really exciting uh, pieces of longevity technology that uh, you would like to talk about? 
Yes, I think it's um, crucial to first clarify that people need to be focusing in on the fundamentals first. So they need to make sure that, you know, that they are exercising regularly with a mixture of cardio and resistance training, that they're eating a healthy diet that's got lots of fiber, minimal saturated fat, um, good levels of protein intake, and they are sleeping well. They need to be doing all of these things first and then kind of supplements and, and other technologies. They're the cherry on top. So I, I just want to clarify that first. But the in terms of the other things that, that are coming through, um, cholesterol-lowering medications, they are, they've unfortunately got a bit of a dirty name in um, on social media, which is really unfortunate because overwhelmingly they reduce heart disease, they reduce strokes, and they actually improve mortality in humans. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very bullish about using cholesterol-lowering medications in, in the correct circumstances. There's also another class of cholesterol-lowering medications called PCSK9 inhibitors. These are, this is a powerful class of medication, um, and the only barrier is the significant cost. So I, I think, hopefully, when, when, these start, when these drugs start to get off patent, um, I'm hopeful that you know, most people over the age of, say, 35 will be using these medications. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of other things that are coming through. Um, so we've got, for type 2 diabetics, we've got a class of medication called GLP-1 receptor agonists. These are game changers for type 2 diabetes, but because of how these medications work, they also result in significant weight loss. And now we've got human clinical research showing this, um, this massive weight loss reduction. So through these, so it, it, this is a peptide, and through these, um, through these peptide medications, we will not have a, a, um, sorry, an obesity epidemic in the next five to 10 years. It, it will be cured. They are that powerful. Um, where we're seeing, you know, 20, if not 30% weight reductions. So it, it's, um, I'm very bullish about that class of medication because if we can keep people at a, at a healthy weight for, for their lives, we reduce cancer rates, we reduce heart disease, we reduce strokes. It's epic. So there's a lot of things coming through in clinical medicine now um, to, to keep people healthy. And that's why I, I think I'm so lucky to be practicing medicine today because of the access of, to these medications that we've got. And I, I think that just to kind of hit home what you're saying, I mean, I'm not sure what it is in New Zealand, but in the United States, by far the two leading causes of death are heart disease and cancer. And so if you can find something that can dramatically reduce both of those causes of death, then you'll have a huge impact on people's health span and, and probably a lot of their lifespan as well. I would, yeah, I would yeah, I completely agree. And was that, um, the, the other thing that that I want to touch on is dementia, because um, I, I was actually watching a, a lecture last night from an Oxford uh, professor about what we can do to prevent dementia. So, you know, overwhelmingly, we've got observational studies now showing that the Mediterranean diet, for example, does seem to reduce uh, dementia rates. Exercise does as well. But interestingly, there's this, um, there's a compound in our blood called homocysteine, and high levels of homocysteine have been correlated with dementia rates and if you lower homocysteine levels using b vitamins and also things like tmg or trimethylglycine we've got some strong hints in the research to suggest that that will reduce dementia rates and if if people have got low so so if, if we use these b vitamins to to lower homocysteine levels and if you combine that with omega-3 those two strategies seem to be really powerful in reducing dementia rates so um, I, I've been talking a little bit about this on my channel recently um, about the ways to prevent dementia. So 
I, I think it's it's crucial to say that dementia is not a normal uh, process of aging. We can do things to prevent it. Um, and, and those therapies are really starting to come through. And we can, we can start doing these things now. Again, it's diet, exercise, sleep, possibly these B vitamins and trimethylglycine and omega-3. One, I saw a lecture by a, a Stanford professor a while ago that was describing uh, looking for alternatives for uh, Alzheimer's medications. And one thing that he pointed out to me that I had no idea about that was I thought was really fascinating is that there is a very strong correlation in lifestyle to Alzheimer's risk, being that the number one risk factor is lack of exercise. Number two, I think, was smoking. And number three was, was something similar, like high, high cholesterol or, or uh, poor diet. And that, that blew me away. I had no idea. I always thought it was just kind of like a random genetic thing. So no, you can actually have a strong impact on whether or not you're going to be at risk for these, these very heartbreaking diseases. Um, and so diet and exercise, obviously you're right, is absolutely number one. Um, and then if you start working in conjunction with these, with these other new medications, I think that could have a huge impact on, on people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. I think you, you can really take charge of your health now. Um, and w with, with good medical care and, and with a focus in on preventative medicine, again, you can, the, the earlier you start, the more reward you'll get. It's, it's awesome what we can do nowadays. Um, and in this space, there's a bunch of kind of companies that have been popping up. You have Altos Labs, of course, that you spoke with Dr. Levine from that's gotten a large amount of, of funding. Then you also have groups like Calico and Life Biosciences. Do you have kind of a, do you have a favorite? Do you have like a, a horse that you'd want to want to bet on? Um, I, I think they all have kind of interesting takes on things, and I'm not sure how much they're actually making available to the public. Uh, but I'd be curious what your, your take on them are. Yeah, I, I quite like what um, Altos Labs is doing. And this is just based on the conversation that I had with Dr. Morgan Levine. What I, what I like about their approach is that they are willing to do experiments that, that could fail. Um, and I, I think it, it's, the, the failures are almost just as important as the successes. Um, because say with DNA methylation, we don't, we don't know which parts of, the, of our DNA methylation uh, are actually important. And for aging and which ones aren't. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of failures before we actually figure out a, a path to success there. So I think a lot more research needs to be done in this space. I'm excited to, to read the, um, the papers that come through, but I think any therapies that are, um, that come available from, from these labs, I think it's going to be many, many years away. Um, and I think we just need to focus in on, on what we can do now to, um, to maximize our health. Yeah, so uh, one thing that you've always kind of punched home is that you want to make sure that things are working on human data uh, because there's a large disconnect between animal data compared to the human data, obviously. Um, and one person that I had on who I, I thought was hugely inspirational to me and actually has probably changed a lot of what I'm going to be doing after my PhD was Donna Lingber, who worked a lot with organoids and organon chips and replacing animal testing to make sure that a lot of these clinical trials could be made more accurate and cheaper and have higher throughput. Um, but also at the same time, I know this is at a cellular level, which is the opposite of a lot of these functional outcomes that you're talking about. So what do you think about a lot of these kind of organoid groups or organon chip groups that are trying to uh, work in to do clinical trials that are solely kind of in vitro, even though they're using microfluidic chips and, and living human tissue? I, my initial uh, reaction to that is that it would be incredibly difficult. So mm -hmm. 
For example, and you mentioned uh, NAD boosters. So <clears throat> molecules such as NMN or NR um, in humans, if you take them orally, they seem to be broken down by the gut bacteria before they're actually absorbed um, into our bodies. And then when, when they are absorbed via the gut, then they go to the liver where they're further broken down. So just, if, if you just look at a single cell and you gave these NAD precursors, you might see awesome health benefits for that cell. But if, but if you're looking at a multicellular organism um, with, with, you know, the gut microbiome, with the, with the rest of the environment, um, I think, I, yeah, I think that would be quite difficult to, um, yeah, to, to validate on a, on a cell in a chip. Um, but, but look, I, I, I'm certainly out of my depth here with, um, with talking about that field. But yeah, my initial reaction is it would be quite difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, just as a, you're you're very much right. But I, just as a side note, I know that they've also been they've actually connected together several different organ systems to try and mimic the, cool. the setup. So having a liver on chip cell connected to say a, a neuron chip cell. I even saw one study where someone had like blood brain barrier neuron chip, blood brain barrier chip, and then fed it crystal meth, and it kind of like went crazy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I always thought that was just kind of an interesting side note that doesn't, I think, doesn't always get as uh, as much attention as it should. Um, yeah, so I, but I suppose the, the thing that, that I would say to that is, so, you know, even even well conducted mice studies. So again, I've mentioned um, the interventions testing program a few times. They are still mice in a lab. They're not subjected to the to the outside world with diseases and mm-hmm. and whatnot. So one of the programs that I'm particularly interested in following is the dog aging project. So that's, that's run by um, Professor Matt Caberline. So I really like that because they're testing molecules or strategies um, in the real world where these dogs, they are living in the real world. They're not, they're not just in a lab. They're subjected to, you know, sunlight, their um, other diseases, they're going out for walks. Um, so I think that, um, I think that model is, could hopefully be far more uh, applicable to humans because obviously we're in the real world. We, we don't just stay in labs. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I like that idea. Um, so you've mentioned a little bit, some of the other people that kind of work in this space, but uh, obviously you, you know, Eleanor Shiki who, who made this introduction for me um, as well as some of the, the other interesting people who do kind of science YouTube. Um, how do you feel about a lot of these other people in this space and other people trying to educate through this, this online medium and going through kind of a probably higher level than scientific American, but not quite like university level. Yeah. I think, I think it's great that the word is getting out there about how much people can do now to improve their health. And I, I find it inspirational that a lot of people are tuning into YouTube to actually find out what, what they can do to improve their health. So I think it's brilliant. The, the downside or the caveat to that is um, studies can be misinterpreted um, and you, you can possibly be led down rabbit holes um, and, and that, that leads to the wrong conclusion. So one of the, what, one of the um, rabbit holes that I've touched on is cholesterol. So, you know, th- there are some people online who say, you know, saturated fat is absolutely fine. LDL cholesterol, if that's through the roof, it doesn't matter so long as your blood sugar levels are low. Um, And and that flies in the face of the clinical guidelines as well as the breadth of the clinical research. So I think it's just, um, I think it's just important for for people who are following these people online 
you, you, you still can't beat what the clinical guidelines have to say. Um, and the reason for that is you've got people who are practicing medicine, writing these guidelines, trawling through the, the relevant clinical research and, and coming up with these guidelines. And internationally, you'll look at, say, different cardiology boards who give cholesterol um, uh, guidelines or recommendations. Overwhelmingly, they're all the same, that we want to be trying to reduce cholesterol essentially as much as possible. Um, or we want to be trying to reduce blood pressure as much as possible or blood sugar levels as much as possible. Um, so I, I just caution not to be led down rabbit holes. That's all. Okay. That's yeah, that's definitely a thing. Cause there is also a lot of poor YouTube reviewers out there as well. Yeah. But um, I, I don't think that they, I think their heart is in the right place. I think that they, right. they feel that they're doing good for humanity, that they're exposing, uh, you know, flaws in how other research was, um, was interpreted and, and their way is a, is a better way. Um, that generally though, those people don't practice medicine. They're not seeing patients face to face. They're not following these patients up because if, if you do practice medicine and you are implementing some of these more radical, uh, changes that, that deviate from the guidelines, generally you will see that your methods aren't as good compared to the, the validated methods. So again, coming to the saturated fat, we've got an overwhelming amount of evidence showing that saturated fat intake increases heart disease. Um, and if, if you practice medicine, you can, you can see that with the patient sitting in front of you. Uh, one person in particular I wanted to ask you about, and I can totally cut this if you would prefer, um, but I understand you have a bit of a beef with David Sinclair. Um, <laughs> and I, I've, I've met David Sinclair a bunch of times and I have I've had so many great experiences with him on a personal level. Um, but again, I'm not really in the right place to be able to actually evaluate some of his science or, or some of his science communication skills. Uh, is that something you want to discuss? So, yeah, I, I think I want to clarify. I do not have a beef with Dr. David Sinclair. <laughs> um, okay. he, yeah, he, he publishes research. He, he talks about his research. He kind of does his own thing and that's, you know, everyone's entitled to their to their opinion so I, I i do not have any animosity towards dr david sinclair the thing I, I i would say is that the um some of the things that he promotes such as resveratrol they've been that they have been disproven um this this was i, I think first disproved by professor matt caberline and uh professor brian kennedy when they published a paper i believe it was in 2005 or 2006 where they showed that resveratrol does not activate a group of enzymes called sirtuins. Um, that instead it was a it was a flaw in how the initial studies were done, where they were seeing um, impacts based on a particular a dye or fluorescent dye um, in those experiments. Um, and whether, yeah, and, and by the sounds of it, Dr. Davis and Claire ignored those findings or thought that his findings were robust and um, could continue down the resveratrol uh pathway and and you know that that's that's completely up to him that that's his um that's his prerogative i think it's just important to um i suppose give the the other side of the story to the public so that when they make their own health choices they can be more informed that um the the guidelines that i follow they sp specifically say do not advocate for the use of resveratrol um and there's a couple of reasons for that one there's been no benefit shown in in the mice studies, um, and, and what I mean by that is when the interventions testing program trialed um, resveratrol, they first wanted to see whether resveratrol was absorbed, and it was, 
but there was no health span or lifespan benefit seen. And in, in the human clinical research, there's been no health span or lifespan benefit seen. Um, but there does look to be harm. Again, it does, just like metformin, it seems to blunt the positive effects of exercise. So my, my role is just to inform patients, again, about the clinical research, about the clinical guidelines, which explicitly say, do not take resveratrol. Um, and so, yeah, so, so so long as people know both sides of the story, they can come up with their own decision about what, what they want to do with their health. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great opinion to have to make sure that all, all research is being at, uh, accurately described. Um, so kind of some of the last things wrapping up is, um, I mean, how do you manage it all, right? Like being a doctor in itself is, is more than a full-time job. Uh, and I imagine can be kind of emotionally draining as well. But on top of that, uh, you have, you have a child, you have a family, you are running this YouTube video that is pumping out videos more than time, all, constantly. And I have trouble keeping, taking care of my dog, right? <laughs> like, so, uh, how, how do you manage all, all of this, all of these pieces while also trying to maintain your own personal health? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Um, so I've had to, I've had to put in some fairly radical uh, lifestyle changes. So for example, every night I go to sleep at 8 p.m. and I wake up at 4 a.m. Um, and so I'm, <clears throat> I'm going through, you know, I'm writing YouTube scripts. I'm, I'm trying to um, look, look at writing uh, research uh, papers myself, um, trying to shoot YouTube videos before I start work at the clinic. So then I work at the clinic um, and then I come home to spend time with family in the evening. And in between that, I'm trying to, you know, go for runs, go to the gym, eat a healthy diet. So it, it's, it's busy. Um, what, what I'm hoping to do if the, um, if the channel continues to grow is hopefully I'll be in a financial position to start reducing my hours at the clinic. So I've managed to reduce my hours from, you know, five days a week at the, at the clinic to four days a week at the clinic. And hopefully that, that can continue because in a perfect world, I'd want to be working at the clinic maybe twice a week. Um, and the rest of the time working on YouTube and research papers and things. So yeah, there's a journey towards it, but I, you know, I'm inspired to do this type of work because I can see the difference that, that, that I'm hopefully making. Um, you know, it's quite inspiring to, that, that people tune into what I've got to say on YouTube. And I can see in the comment section that, you know, by following, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, and the occasional supplement that, that people are feeling better, that they're, you know, preventing disease, um, I, I, I find that awesome. And I, I think that, you know, if not me, who? So I, I, I want to try and push this field forward because I can see the massive impact that it might have on humanity. I think in today's world, I, I don't see, and unless you're, um, unless you're extremely unlucky with the genetics that you've been dealt with, I, I don't think that it's unreasonable to expect a very healthy 100 to 110 year lifespan. Um, I think there's many things that we can be doing now to, to, to reach those goals. And I think that the more people that can do that, the better, because, you know, just thinking about it economically, there is so much resource that's spent on, on raising children, on educating them, on, on helping them reach a particular point in their career where they can really make an impact on the world. And if we can maximize that time where people are making that, that positive difference on the world, I think that's really inspiring. So yeah, I, I, I just think, if not me, who? Um, and yeah, doing what I can to chip in. And, and for the record, people watching this, Brad is up at 5 a.m. to do this interview. So thank you very much for, for getting up so early to, to meet with me. Yeah, no, no uh, worries. Yeah, And 
I think that's really amazing that you think someone who is a doctor, who is at the same time being uh, very directly impacting these lives of patients, thinks that they're making just as much of a difference on, on YouTube and being an educator. Uh, I think that's that's really inspiring to hear for a lot. Yeah, of thanks a lot. Um, yeah. Um, so my my last question is, what what do you think is probably what you're most proud of? Uh, I mean, you've done a lot in the clinic. You're working on these clinical trials, and then you're also doing a lot of this education. Do you have like a, a specific event or maybe a like a fun story about something that you're like this was this was something really cool or something that I'm really proud of that I did? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to sound cliched, but it, it's probably the the birth of my son. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I certainly, I, I wanted to be a dad, um, in, in my life. And I think, yeah, it was the birth of my son and, and trying to make sure that, that I'm looking after him as, as best as I can. Um, and, and I think that that can't be overstated that yes, you can, um, you can do really awesome things with, with career and with money, um, and with prestige and whatnot. But for me, I think it's family. Um, and, and that sort of ties into longevity as well. If you've got, if you've got a good social network and if you've got a, and in terms of your friends and close family and whatnot, that's going to improve your health as well. So, you know, it, it's cliched, but yeah, probably my son. The most successful stem cell culture you can have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was, it was great talking to you and I'm, I'm so happy to, to meet you, Brad. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.